morning. So much for trying to pretend nothing's going wrong, right? And I'm a little offended. My jokes are funny regardless, just for the record, all right? See? Yeah, I know. John chapter 1 is where we are. If you guys would turn there, there's a Bible on the chair in front of you if you want to borrow one. We ask that you be in Scripture. It's page 886 if you borrow a Bible. I will even cheat and help you get there faster. I test drove the first five verses of this on the high school uh, last Wednesday. So, Joe, Abby, you're welcome. And uh, so we wanted to look at some passages around Christmas that reshape what Christmas means for us. Uh, before that, you know, it just dawned on me. Uh, something John said while he was praying uh, reminded me, uh, as Bethany Baptist gets ready to pass their budget this week, we'll have a, bu- a budget forthcoming. We should wrap it up Monday night, tomorrow night with the elders. You guys will probably see it the first or second week of January. We want to bring that to you as well, that you can see the budget and our needs and how we're moving forward. Also, in the app, uh, we put them on the screen last week. They're probably on the sliders that are on the TVs before and after service. Um, Three sets of deacons or five deacons total that we're looking at bringing on as new deacons. Uh, And we're giving you that opportunity to see them and ask questions if you have questions. So just a reminder, church, as being a part of the body, we want you to be involved in that. Back to John. So we're looking at Christmas as we lean into this season, excuse me, the season we call Advent, the Advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. Theologically, we say Advent and Parousia, right? The Advent is the first coming of Christ. The Parousia is the final return of Christ. Advent is the longing or anticipation of someone or something to come, right? So the advent of Christ, as we anticipate each year Christmas, right? What we celebrate on Christmas. Now, let me ask you a question about this. Now, when you were born, or if you're a parent and you have children, this probably even makes more sense, but when you were born, there was lots of celebration, right? People loved you before you were born. If you're a parent, Maybe if you're a mom, you had a bridal shower. People came and gave you gifts for your baby. I know they're moving to that like co-ed bridal shower thing. Don't do that, just for the record. No dude likes that. Not a single dude here. I don't care what they say. Don't like it, right? I'm saying. Okay. It's a girl thing. Stay with it. Go with it. Embrace it. We love you, all right? You have the children. The bridal shower, you, you have, or not bridal, uh, baby shower, you have all these gifts for this child that's coming. The child comes and, and family comes in and sees the baby and they celebrate and probably even bring more gifts. And it, it, it's special, whether that be in the hospital or at home or, or wherever. And then annually, the child turns one and two and three and 16 and 20 and whatever. And there are gifts and celebration, this celebration of another year lived. And we count those years. Is that really what we do each year for Jesus? Is this a birthday party with cake? And like, hey, congratulations, Jesus, you made it one more year. If it is, it is the weirdest birthday celebration ever because Jesus gets so little of our time, no gifts, and all of a sudden we celebrate ourselves. Christmas should be something entirely different. I wrote down some things. Will you spend more time on Christmas shopping this year or in worship? 
Some of you are like, I'm not doing any Christmas shopping. Check, I win, right? Okay, I know. For the most of you, though. <laughs> will you make more plans to spend time with family and friends than you will with church and in worship? Right? Will you spend more time doing other things? Will you do more to gratify your own desires than you will to share the gospel with others, which was the entire purpose of Christ becoming flesh? See, Christmas shouldn't be this. It's not a birthday party for Jesus. We'll get to why that isn't. Now, listen, if you're a parent and you tell your little kids that and you do that, that's a cute way to start this conversation. It is. I'm not knocking it. We should eventually grow out of that. And we as adults should understand that's not what this is. That's what we say. That's how we treat it sometimes. But it's the most dysfunctional birthday party ever because we get all the stuff. Right? And Jesus gets so little of the attention, it's like he's the guest of honor, and we don't even invite him. It's weird. I'm going to put a note on the screen. Christmas is about rebirth. Christmas celebrates the eternal Jesus giving us the opportunity to be in God's family. It is more about your rebirth than simply the birth of Jesus. It is about salvation and the gospel reaching out to the lost. Here's what it's not. It is not a season where professing Christians go out and spend money they don't have on things they don't need, who eat too much and drink too much, and do a bunch of things, honestly, that are sin and have nothing to do with salvation. We've commercialized this, and when I say professing Christians... Understand this, our entire country is going to celebrate Christmas, except for a small selection of angry atheists and maybe some Jews, right? I mean, like, seriously, some will celebrate Hanukkah and some are grumpy. Most in America will celebrate Christmas. How many of them are celebrating salvation? More. How many of us are celebrating salvation and focusing on taking the gospel to a lost people rather than the secular version that the rest of the non-Christian country celebrates. Let that challenge us for a moment this morning. Let that sit in and let's see how the Bible describes this thing that happened 2,000 years ago and see if what we come up with is a birthday celebration for Jesus. Fair? John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, John's gospel, John the author, John, the same author as the book of Revelation that we're working our way through. We're going to take these four weeks off, a couple for Advent, one for Easter, and one for New Year's, then we're right back in the book of Revelation in Revelation 4. Same author who writes the book we're studying, Revelation, is the author of this gospel. He was one of the closest friends during Jesus' human life here on earth, during the three years that Jesus was in vocational ministry, training and making disciples, John was one of the closest ones. It's John that writes the most unique gospel. The others are the gospels that look and sound a lot alike. His is the most unique one. John starts in the beginning in creation. Now, John's gospel doesn't open with a birth narrative. In fact, let me just kind of summarize this for you, where the four Gospels open. So John begins before creation, never talks about Jesus' birth. Mark 
doesn't even write about the birth of Christ, but begins in Jesus' ministry. 50% of them don't even talk about the birth of Christ. Matthew begins with God's covenant to Abraham before getting to Jesus being born, but it's a fulfillment of God's promises from thousands of years prior. And Luke opens with a prophecy about John the Baptist, spends an entire chapter on John the Baptist before moving into the birth narrative. The most famous one that we hear every year is Luke 2, not where Luke even begins. Two Gospels don't even write about the birth narrative. Two do, but their focus is something else. One is God's fulfillment of a covenant he made with Abraham way back in the day. And another is God bringing a human to fulfill his promises of all the Old Testament to be and how God does that first in John the Baptist and second in Jesus. So maybe, maybe this emphasis of a child in a manger is just a little click off track, if you will. Let's read verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I want you to hear this. This is the spoken Word of God, the very voice of God. This is not the written Word of God, like the Bible. We call this the Word of God, but these are just words on a page. They're good words. Inspired by God, given by God through God's authors that he wrote down. Don't get me wrong, they're unique. This is the voice of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this Word was with God, and this Word is God. And this is before creation. Verse 2, he, so now this Word is a he, he was in the beginning with God. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this passage, clearly who we're talking about is Jesus. That Jesus is the eternal word of God before he was born. So what we call that is pre-incarnate. Before he became flesh, who was Jesus? Jesus is eternal God, the very word of God, the very spoken word of God. Jesus is a he. He is with God. He is also God. So we're speaking here in terms of the Trinity, the triune God, a person who is distinct and also God. He is the word of God, and the reason that is important is if you go all the way back to Genesis, the creation narrative or the creation account that also begins before creation says, in the beginning God, meaning God the Father, verse 2 says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the Holy Spirit, and then in verse 3 it says, and he, and then God spoke, we have the word of God, and God speaks light into existence. We see the Trinity. We see Father, Spirit, and in this case, Word or Son, if you will. We see the triune God in creation, creating. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's a he. He's a he, not an it. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. So all things were made through him, he's creator, and without him was not anything that was made. So Jesus, the word, is creator, all things were made through him. So quick list, Jesus is God, Jesus is eternal, no beginning, uncreated, eternal God. He was with God before the beginning, he's the very spoken word of God, he's separate in personhood from the Father, but also he is one with God the Father. Jesus is creator of all things. Nothing was made apart from Jesus. Now, does this eternally 
coexistent creator divine God, do you really need a birthday party? Did he really begin 2,000 years ago? Well, no. Something unique happened, we'll get there for sure. But he has always been. We're not like, okay, this year, 2022, you're really old, 2022 years old, right? No, eternal. No beginning, no end. Creator, he made humanity. He made time. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars, the very things we count time by. Don't know that he needs a birthday cake. Verse 4, in him was life, and life was the light of men. Jesus is life. He, he is the spoken word. When God didn't like put things together and hope it would come to, come to be, or, or pray over it and, and then hope it would become life, God spoke. The very words of God create life. When there was nothing, God spoke and made life. Jesus is life. He is the words that became and gave life to everything. There is one unique exception in creation. God speaks and there's light. God speaks and there's a sun and moon and stars. God speaks and there's birds. God speaks and there's animals. God then forms man and breathes, literally synonym, spirits, life into humanity. We are the one exception. But the very creative force is the word of God, is Jesus. Jesus is life. Jesus is life. It says, in him was life, and life was the light of men. Light here, just like light in the beginning. By the way, when Jesus spoke and there was light, or when God spoke and Jesus creates light, he doesn't create the sun and the moon and the stars until later. He is light. In fact, all the way at the end of the book of Revelation, we'll see this as we wrap it up probably right before Easter, that it says in eternity there is no need for sun or moon because Jesus will be the light. The very light that shines. The very presence that allows us to see what is and what isn't. Jesus is life. Jesus is light. I remember I was getting ready to teach this passage. It was a few years ago. It was before we bought the house we're in now. We lived in Huntington Beach. And I remember... Like, you know how it is, you get up in the middle of the night, and you, you're thirsty, or you go to the bathroom, whatever you're going to do, and you just kind of walk to the house in the dark because you don't want to wake anybody up, right? You navigate your house in the dark all the time. Well, the power went out, including the streetlights. Like, so the, the streetlights, they kind of have that little light that goes in through the cracks in your blinds, and, you know, and all the little things that I never really realized how many things glow in my house, Right? Maybe some of you guys have a Keurig that kind of lights up and on the inside or the refrigerator that's got a light or the clocks that are digital, give you a light, whatever it is, right? There's a lot of light in our house with nothing on, if, you with, if you're with me. And so the power goes out. By the way, the next week I went out and I bought those little plug-in things and your plugs that turn on when the power goes out because of this moment. So everything goes out and I get up in the middle of the night and I'm kicking something, I'm stubbing my toes, I'm, I can't... How is this house that I navigate in my halfway in my sleep in the dark all the time, how do I not know where anything is? And I was 
preparing this message. I had been working on this, and it just, I'm like, yeah, light, I get it. Like the very ability to see my way through something is light. Jesus is light. He's the very ability to navigate this world without busting your toes up, really, right? That's probably not the theological way to say that, but you get my point. He is the very ability to see right from wrong what is from what isn't. And when that is removed, we are incredibly blind. Let's read that again, verse 4. In him was life, and life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, this isn't just a need. This is a promise. Yes, we need the light. So we live in a world broken by sin, and not just broken, but dead in sin. We live in a world that is irreparably apart from the gospel, irreparably dead in sin, right? We don't, we don't think that way. We don't even think of ourselves that way. We'll talk about that in a minute, but we don't think of the world as inherently, completely, and totally evil. Now, I'm not saying it's as evil as it could be, right? That there is a restraining force that we call common grace, that, that God withholds the world from being as bad as it could be, but it is completely bad, and that we are completely bad. We like to think of ourselves as good people who just need a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on us and we'll be just fine. We're not. We're inherently wicked. We're sinful at our core. And we're in desperate need of a Savior. Here's what it says. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Jesus shines in a dark world, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a promise here. There's no focus. There's no birth here yet. There's, there's nothing. We're talking about the eternal Jesus who will eventually enter into flesh. That's not the point, but it's saying that he's the light, he, he is life, and that darkness, sin, evil cannot overcome him. Two verses come to mind. Since we've been studying Revelation, here's one from Revelation 17. It's an upcoming passage. The woman and the beast, we'll talk about that later. But it says they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. Jesus will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords, king of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Remember all those passages we've been reading to the churches. To him who overcomes or to him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, Jesus says. You must be victorious over this world. So he's saying he empowers them. The reason Jesus reveals specific parts of himself to the churches to match their specific needs is to give them the ability to overcome this world. Not because they can, but because he has. That Jesus has overcome. In 1 Timothy 1, it says this, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The Bible speaks of Jesus as victorious, as overcoming, as one who cannot be conquered. And for those who are in Christ, if you're in Christ, you can conquer as well. That you have Christ in you, Christ's spirit in you, that you have the ability, because of Christ, to overcome this world. The choice is yours to live in that, to surrender to that to embrace that, to follow that, to take what Jesus has given you in the gospel. 
and to live in it. But the power to overcome and the promise that Jesus is victorious is already true. Verse 6, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John, our author, is writing about a different John, John the Baptist. Right? I don't want you to be confused. John the Baptist is a prophet of God. If you just kind of go backwards right now, about 2,000 years to this period of time, what has happened is the Old Testament ended with the book of Malachi, or in the Ezra-Nehemiah era, if you will. Last prophet to speak is Malachi, about 430 B.C., and he promises that the next person who speaks will be the one who points to the Messiah, and then God goes silent for 400 years. God stops speaking to a people who, for the most part, have quit listening anyhow. But he stops speaking, and he makes the promise, when I speak again, I will point to the very promise of Scripture. The Old Testament is this, this almost 2,000 years of covenant promise history that ends anticlimactically. The, the promise is unfulfilled. That the one who will come, the promise to Abraham who will bless all the nations, the promise to Moses who will be the true and greater prophet, the promise to David, the king who will reign on a throne forever, has not come at the end of what you and I would call the Old Testament. And there are 400 years that go by, and God doesn't even speak. People go in and out and worship, and God will not speak through a prophet. And then this, and John the Baptist breaks in. All the Gospels talk about John the Baptist. Maybe we should tailor our understanding of Christmas, right? That John the Baptist comes, and he calls not people outside the faith, but people inside the faith to repent, right? Listen, he calls them to come out and be baptized. That's why he's called John the Baptist, that he is calling Jewish people to come out and repent and be baptized. Now, this is important because Jews didn't get baptized. Jews went through covenant circumcision and cleansing rituals, but he was calling Jewish people to be baptized. See, baptism will, in the New Testament, take the place of the covenant symbol of circumcision. Good news for you, fellas. Anyhow, so as he does so, he is calling the people of faith to repent. He's saying, listen, the people who should be following God are so far off track, we got to start there. See, that's the message to the American church today. The people that should be are so far off track, we need to repent. We need to refocus. We need to look less like the world we live in and more like the Jesus we profess to follow. So John the Baptist breaks the silence. Here's what it says, verse 7. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John is not the light. His purpose is very clear. It's not about him. John came to bear witness, to point to, to reveal the light. How do we take and relate this to us? So you and I are not the light. Jesus is, right? Okay, that's an easy one. You and I are not the focus of Christmas. Jesus is, right? You and I are not the Savior of the world. Jesus is. This season is not to be about you and I. Be about Jesus. Now, here's what I know with all my heart. I mean 100% of my heart. I know this today. 
I'm not going to change what you do for Christmas. I'm not, you're not going to go home and you're not going to go, hey, sorry, Josh, man, you're not getting anything for Christmas. No Game Boy, no nothing, no, no, you know, I mean, we're not going to destroy our children's lives around this message. I know that. But I'm not even sure that we believe what's important right now. Right? We're not going to go upend all our plans. I'm not saying we have to. But I would like you to walk out today and take an honest assessment. How much time am I going to give to Jesus over the next three weeks? Two weeks? Two weeks? How much time am I going to give to others? How do I balance that out? Am I going to spend money I don't have on things I don't need? Am I going to eat too much? The Bible calls that gluttony. Am I going to drink too much? The Bible calls that drunkenness, right? Am I going to get more joy for myself, whether that be in the giving or the receiving, whatever it is that you derive joy from? Am I going to focus more on what I want than on what Jesus wants from me? It's those things I want to ask. How focused on reaching the lost am I this year, or am I completely internally focused? It's me and my family, and, you know, Rob just shamed us into coming to church on Sunday, so we'll be here on Christmas. Or is this about Jesus this year? And again, we need to reassess, because pretty much everything we do at Christmas time has zero to do with Jesus, even though it's got his name on it. That should challenge us. Because that's how we live our lives. With so little attention given to what Jesus truly wants, even though we throw his stamp on top of us. We buy the t-shirt, we get the tattoo, we go to church, whatever it is. Let this be about Jesus. So he is not the light. His job is to point to the light. That's, that is a focus. That is a thing that we can, we can adapt. It's not about us. It needs to be about Jesus. How do we take what we're doing and make it about Jesus? I love what Rob said. He said, hey, you have friends. Invite your friends to church. Maybe that's a good starting point. How about share Jesus with them? Like, share your life. Share your story. Share the gospel with them. Bring them to church. All of that. But who are you even intentionally praying about this year at Christmas? The most likely, this and Easter, right? The two most likely times that if you invite somebody to church, they will come with you. And who are you like strategically praying for? Man, I've got my family member who doesn't know Jesus. I'm praying, God, soften their hearts. I want to invite them to church. I want to, I want to see them come to faith. How much are we investing in the gospel moving forward to lost people? Versus the dinner menu for a family gathering or a shopping list or whatever. Verse 9, it says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So this is starting, John is starting to flirt with things that talk about the birth of Christ. Now he's never going to share the birth. The word Mary is not going to come out of his mouth. He's not going to focus on that. But the true light, Jesus that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So he is talking about Christmas. He's just approaching it different than we do. He is talking about Jesus who became flesh, but that's not what he's emphasizing. Here's why. I want to put this on the screen. Philippians 2 says this. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's how Paul writes it to the church in Philippi. He says, Jesus, who is eternal God, the creator, whose very words gave life, who is the light of the world, make no mistake, it's not the sun, it's Jesus. The sun shines, Jesus is the light. That in another universe, in another place, or at night, Jesus is the light. That he is the truth, that he is life, that he is eternal. He wasn't created when he was born. He was God who gave up everything that it meant to be God and humbled himself, lowered himself, condescended to a human body. I want you to hear that. Jesus gave up everything it meant to be Jesus in order to become a child. People have likened it in youth groups to like a human becoming an ant. I'm saying it doesn't hold a candle, pardon the pun, to that. That Jesus gave up his eternal everything, his glory, his power. He gave up everything willingly to become this, this broke up, broken, jacked up little thing you and I are, human. And was born into a poor poverty-stricken city into a poor family, lowered himself, condescended. Like when someone is condescending, we hear that as a, they're talking down to you. He condescended to human flesh. We don't celebrate the little cute baby. We have to understand the sacrifice it took to get there. And that when he would grow up, he would go to the cross that the very life in him was life, and life was the light of men, it says. Jesus creates life. He speaks that is life, and in him is life. And somehow that life will be nailed to a cross and die. I don't even understand how life can die. I understand how I can die and you can die. How can the author of life, the words who give life, how does he die? Because he lowered himself to human flesh. Because he condescended so greatly so that we could understand who God is and that we could be reconciled to God. This isn't a joyful look. This is a brand new baby. This should be a morning of look what God had to do and a joy to celebrate how it impacts me. We paint a really cute picture of a child with animals and magi and gifts. He was born in a place where animals sleep and poop. He lowered himself from God to human. He was on the run because they wanted to kill all the young males to prevent this from happening. He wasn't born in a rock star home. He was born in poverty. And none of that holds a candle to the fact that he gave up being God for a minute to become fully human. You can't stop being God, but he laid down all the privileges of divinity and let them be limited to a human body. There are things he does, like he waits on God for information instead of being the all-knowing divine creator of the universe. He lowers himself, he condescends, he humbles himself. He shrinks himself down so far so that we can see him. 
Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world would not, did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus' birth is rejected not just by humanity that he created, that's true, by his covenant people, Israel, who were to be the best and the brightest, who had all the promises of God, who had all the, if you will, all kind of the things pointing at what was going to happen. They should have been waiting on the moment, and yet they rejected him. Why'd they reject him? Because it was going to squeeze out their power, their prestige, and their position. Wow, that was a Southern Baptist, like power, prestige, position. That was good. I should be sick more often, or not sick, but I should, yeah. Should be a Baptist. To the people that would lose their power as Pharisees and Sadducees, they rejected him because he was becoming more popular than them. They rejected him because he was going to squeeze out some of the things they enjoyed. How do we reject or turn our back on Jesus this season because they'll squeeze out the things we want to enjoy? See, we all do this. We all reject Jesus in ways, sometimes passively, sometimes actively. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I want you to hear this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, who were born, that's what I want to focus on today, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There are some major gospel points being made in this verse right here. One, we are not born children of God. We are not born good people who are on our way to heaven and we somehow mess it up or just need a little bit of Jesus, we're born not children of God. Secondly, Jesus says we are born enemies of God and under God's wrath. We don't like to talk about that. We don't like to hear it. But actually the words of Jesus say so. And thirdly this, Jesus came to change those facts. He came to change the fact that we're not born in the family of God. We're born outside the family of God. In fact, so far outside... We're enemies of God and under God's wrath. Don't believe me? John chapter 3, just two chapters later. Here's three verses. Verse John 3, 3 says this. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He will go on to explain those who are born of flesh of flesh and those who are born of spirit of spirit. He's going to go on and say, listen, you must be born again. You are not born in the family of God. You must be born again. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God, listen, remains on him. You are born under the wrath of God. We don't like to say that out loud, but it's true. The wrath of God remains on you. Unless you become in Christ and are welcome into the family of God, the wrath of God remains on you, on me. Third, Jesus came to change, change this. Verse, so, uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For length of the, the, the verse on the screen, I didn't put up verse 18. 
But verse 18 says, if you don't, you're condemned already. Again, the wrath of God remains. See, Jesus came to change these two facts. You're not born in the family of God. You're born under the wrath of God. You're born enemies of God. And Jesus lowered himself, condescended. Jesus' life became flesh to change those facts about me and you. So we'll read it again. He says this, verse 12. To all who do receive him, or did receive him, the same is true today, to all who do receive, who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, that you must be, according to Jesus, born again. So you're born under sin. You're born separate from God. I was born separate from God, under sin, under the wrath of God. And then I didn't get better, I got worse. And you didn't get better, you got worse. Then we add sin on top of sin, and we get worse. Modern American failure in churches is the belief that we're good people apart from Jesus. That we're not good people, we're sinful people, we're evil people. Paul writes to the church in Rome, uh, the, yeah, the church in Rome, and he says, no one is good, no, not one. All have gone astray. Their lips are quick to spread lies. Their feet are quick to cause evil. No one is good. No, not one. You're not born good. You're not a good person apart from Jesus. You're not grading on a curve and you're like, well, I'm better than Hitler, but I'm not quite Mother Teresa. No, no, no. We're all over here. We'll let Jesus sort out Mother Teresa. But we're all evil. And that the gospel is that Jesus comes to open the door to be the family of God. Not because of you, but because of him. Because he is the fulfillment of God's plan since before the beginning of time. That he is the fulfillment of the promises of all that we see. That all that we can be, it's through him. That he enters into our time and space. He puts on flesh, he becomes incarnate. So that he can, he can bridge the massive gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity. The best image for that is the cross where Jesus literally is suspended between heaven and earth. Between a holy God and us. Wicked, evil, sinful humanity under the wrath of God. And that as we become the children of God, we stand behind the righteousness of Jesus and he has paid our debt. See, that's the gospel message. That is the reason for Christmas. See, remember back right before we did that Philippians passage, remember we taught through Ephesians, I actually taught this passage, it's Ephesians 2, and it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin. When you were born, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, note the repetition, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, God parses out the difference between physical life and spiritual life. Though, how many ever years ago you were born, 12 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever it is, you were born flesh. Jesus says what flesh is flesh, what spirit is spirit. You must be spiritually alive. That's what Paul is speaking to. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but out of great love for Christ, he made us alive even when we were dead in our sins. He did this. Back to John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. That is as close as John will get to talking about the birth of Jesus. I'll read it again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus became like us. In fact, an old church father about 1,700 years ago, he said this, Jesus became like us so that he could make us like him. And he became like us in human flesh so that we could become like him, children of God. That we could become sons and daughters of God. That we could be reconciled to him. So he came all the way to us. You see, the, the gospel reality, the spiritual reality, that being dead in your sins means this. There's nothing you can do about it. When I taught that passage four, five, six months ago, whatever it was, we kept asking the question, what can dead people do? Well, nothing. That's what you can do about your faith and your salvation and your sin. Nothing. Jesus must do it. God must awaken you to life. God must give you spiritual life because there's nothing you can do. You're dead in your sin. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 15, let's get to some application today. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See, the author emphasizes John the Baptist's message. I'm not the light. He's the light. It's not about me. It's all about him. See, that's a takeaway for us. How do we do this Christmas thing? How do we do it better, more biblical? How do we, how do, we do it rightly? And so we'll put this note on the screen. What Christmas should be. Though born in human flesh, Jesus is eternal God who has always existed. Jesus needs no birthday party. Rather, he desires us to join him in seeking the lost he came to save. John pointed to Jesus. I'm not it. He's it. We need to point to Jesus. And go, this isn't about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about you kids. This isn't about you family. This, isn't about, this is about Jesus. How do we take the focus off ourselves and embrace what both John and Jesus were doing, taking the message of the gospel to others who do not know Jesus yet. Joining Jesus in his mission, he left heaven, he left his throne, he left divinity, literally, to seek and save the lost. Those are his words. So how should we spend our time that is focused on him? We should do it to seek and save the lost. We should join Jesus in his mission. We should join God in his purpose. Like little kids, we should put on our boots and grab our jacket and grab our lunchbox and go to work with Father God. And join him in the mission that his good son, Jesus, did. And we should be like that. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The rules you can't keep came from Moses. Forgiveness, grace, came through Jesus. See, what you couldn't do was pointed out by God through the prophets. We could never keep the rules right because we're dead, because we have no spiritual life, because we're separate from God. The law just points that fact out. It just reveals to us our need for a savior. The law never saved anyone. It just pointed out the fact that we're sinners in need of a savior. But, John, but the author here says, 
Grace and truth, grace and peace, it all comes from Jesus. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here's another note for you, what Christmas should be. Christmas should include significant time of celebrating and worshiping Jesus. Celebrating Jesus and worshiping Jesus. For rescuing us from the wrath of God. Our salvation and reconciliation with God as our Father deserves a majority focus. Not gift-giving, not watching our old favorite black-and-white movie, not family gathering, but gathering together with family to worship and celebrate Jesus rescuing us from spiritual death, giving us spiritual life, that our salvation and reconciliation with God, meaning that we are the family of God now. If you're in Christ, that's true of you. If you're not, we want to talk to you and tell you about that. And we want to invite you to be family. But if you are now in the family of God, that's how this time should be spent. We should be grateful and thankful to God for coming to us in Christ and making us children of his. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Notice there's God the Father and God the Son here. No one has ever seen God the Father, verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he, Jesus, has made him, God, known. Christmas is about us seeing God, not a child in a manger. Christmas is about God putting on human flesh so that we can understand God. We can become children of God. He has made him known. He has made God known to us. So I want to read you a couple of verses and a closing what Christmas should be. Philippians 2, so same passage, we talked about Jesus condescending to flesh. Philippians 2, he who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, that Jesus humbled, condescended, lowered himself. Here's what it goes on to say, Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Can we, do you have that one? Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless. The purpose of him coming here is that you may be blameless. Listen to this, children of God, that you may be made the family of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But I want you to hear this last line. I'll read it for you again. Philippians 2.15, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus, the light of the world, who has now included you in the family of God, transformed you to be like him. Now you get to be little lights. He's the capital L, light of the world. But in Christ, you and I get to be lights to the world. We get to reflect Christ to others. That because of what he has done for us, because of his humility and condescension, his lowering of himself to be here, because of that, he has made us the family of God. And because we are family, because we've been made the family of God, we can be blameless in God's sight, and now we get to be lights to others. You can shine as lights in the world. We chose this year because Christmas is on a Sunday that we get to celebrate on a Sunday. We will be here on a Sunday morning worshiping as, all, as we always should be every Sunday, but we will be doing it on Christmas together as a family, living out some of this, 
But typically, we would do a Christmas Eve service. Maybe we'd do a candlelight service. That idea of a candlelight service is that we become lights to the world. That we become little Jesuses, little flawed, broken, messy Jesuses to the world who doesn't know him. Just as Jesus came to the world so we could see God, we are to live in the world so that people can see Jesus. I'll close with this. What Christmas should be. Christ surrendered who he was in glory and lowered himself to flesh. Jesus humbled himself to save us. We should humble and surrender ourselves to share Jesus with lost people this year. Let me say it a different way. We should humble and surrender our plans. We should humble and surrender our time. We should humble and surrender our homes. We should humble and surrender our energy to match that of Jesus, to share him with lost people this year. So I'll close with where we began. Does Jesus really need a birthday party? Or does what he has done for you deserve something holy and entirely other? Where the focus is truly him and not you, where the focus is truly salvation and not this world, where the energy and time is put into light coming into the world, whether that be celebrating the light that has come to us or us being a light to others? Or is this a time we should spend all our money, eat all our food, drink all our drinks, and do it in his name? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Sometimes we are just so far off track. And, and it's just true. We didn't get here yesterday. We didn't cause it. We didn't begin it. It's just true. Sometimes we just miss the point. And sometimes the commercialization and, and the culture we live in just shapes what we do. And we miss what this should be. That you have made us, Generations Church, a family of yours. A family, a local family, a local body that we should be with and that we should be celebrating our salvation and our rescue, that we should be reaching the lost, that we should be sacrificing ourselves the way you sacrificed yourself to become flesh and sacrificed yourself on a cross, that we should reshape our values and what we do and what we care about, and we should worship much, much more. Help us to learn that, reshape that. Again, that doesn't mean cancel our plans unless that's what you're telling us to do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. It means reshaping the values in them. Let us value you more than we value this world because ultimately this world is passing away. Let us spend our time in this world reaching the lost just as you spent every day of your life in this world reaching the lost. Help us to understand that and follow you in that, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.